<laughs> so, guys, talk about story. I mean, this is some massive wor- world building, and also creating your own mythology, really. We started with, you know, Morgan Short Film Exordium, which it takes place in the same world as this film. And when we got together to make the story, you know, to make Spine of Night, my first question to Morgan was like, would, you know, do you want to tell something else in the same world? Right. So a lot of the origin of the world building comes from his original treatment that we, we then sort of built upon to, to make the screenplay and, and to do the whole thing. Um, I guess I'll toss it over to Morgan to talk a little bit about like where those original ideas is sort of, you know, like the original inspiration, like what, you know, you take it, Morgan. Oh, well, I mean, it's so hard to know where anything really comes from, I suppose. But I, I think it, for both of us, it, it all came from just a lifetime of being just genuine fans of, you know, sword and sorcery and weird fantasy and horror uh, influences. And certainly we both grew up with, um, you know, sort of that peak late 70s, early 80s, when fantasy adult-ish animation was everywhere. You know, the, the, the Bakshi films and um, eventually heavy metal, you know, would, were both, you know, big touchstones of my childhood. So, so I think it all came out of that. In terms of specifically writing this, um, the rotoscoping process is just really time-consuming, and it takes... <laughs> So long, you have plenty of time to think about, like, every character, like, every possible, like, you'll draw the same sword tens of thousands of times in the course of a short film. So it's a lot of time for your mind to wander about where every minor detail could have come from. So, you know, each project so far has been just, like, taking just musings. I had had about the previous one and, you know, adding them together together. And eventually we just kind of ended up with a, a big fantasy sandbox to play on. The Spine of Night is an old-fashioned approach to rotoscoping using computer magic in my third selection of horror films to discover. An all-star voice cast featuring Lucy Lawless, Patton Oswald, and Richard E. Grant highlight this animated film. And this is Sci-Fi Talk the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. I spoke to the co-writers and directors in Philip Gillott and Morgan Galen King. As far as both of you connecting to do this, had you known each other before, or how did this come about you worked together on? No, no, we hadn't, uh, we hadn't worked together before this or known each other. Uh, I'd been doing short films in my living room uh, for a couple of years, uh, like sort of working on the rotoscope style and figuring out like a workflow. And the, I did one short called Exordium that, you know, made very small rounds uh, on a certain subset of the internet that made its way over to Phil. Yeah, so so to put it in uh, context of of They Remain, I had not yet shot They Remain when I saw Exordium. So we we actually filmed the live action motion reference footage for Spine of Night about a year before we started shooting They Remain. So just to wow. give you a sense of the of the whole <laughs> the whole yeah. timeline here. Yeah, yeah, that is pretty amazing. Obviously, you mentioned rotoscoping. I recognized it right away. Uh, What's changed, uh, Morgan? Is uh, is there more uh, computer a computerized way of doing it rather than the old literally draw frame by frame? Kind of thing? Well, <laughs> there are new innovations in 
the area. You know, I think you're, we're really just now in the last two years really seeing more and more tools to help with that. I don't think any of them are quite there yet. So we did it on a computer, but as but still as old-fashioned as you could do within that. So it's all drawn frame by frame. There's no computer assistance on there short of it being drawn on a computer. Well, it certainly worked for Disney, didn't it? So why not? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Voice cast. I mean, I could listen to Richard E. Grant read the phone book. I mean, he is so good. And his he has that long exposition that he has to give. And it's so beautifully performed. And I, I, always good to see Lucy, who I talked to earlier this year, back in the fantasy uh, realm again. So that was kind of neat. Talk about getting some of these actors. And Patton Oswalt, I, I mentioned as well. Some really good people in this. Yeah, so, you know, we cast our um, our voice actors pretty late in the process. So it was probably year five or six of the animation when we really started to get into casting those names. And it was really, uh, I mean, a joy to do it because I'm such a fan of all of these people. I mean, all of them, you know, but we, we really started with the people that we knew were um, self-identified nerds, right? So we started with Joe Manganiello and Pat Oswalt, who are both, you know, they love this stuff. And then, you know, we went to Lucy, um, you know, because she is really genre royalty. I mean, you know, from Xena to Battlestar to Spartacus to her cameos in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. Like it's That's just right. really, yeah, little yeah. Cameo, yeah. yeah, just, um, and, and she loves the project, uh, love the character and really, really responded so well to it. And I mean, Richard E. Grant is just, uh, I don't know. I've been a fan of his for, years and years it's so funny like so many people have cite um withnal and i as their entry point for richard e grant but weirdly my entry point for richard e grant fandom was hudson hawk which is a movie that very yes. few human beings like at all but i for my own weird reasons think is absolutely amazing and him in particular in it is just like sheer comedic mania um but then i mean he's just i mean he's worked with everybody in in Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola film, and the Altman films. In he has a small role in um, Age of Innocence. Like he's just, I mean, he's absolutely incredible and so talented. Uh, yeah, I just, I just love him. Uh, we we're very, very lucky to get him. I don't actually know if he is a nerd, but he definitely got the material and definitely knew exactly what to do with it. So you know, yeah, he gave it a Shakespearean kind of air to it. Which I he, thought yes, was really yeah, cool. Yeah. It's like, I love that. Morgan, I appreciated the designs of the armor and the helmets. It was very different. You kind of went your own direction. I guess you both were involved in that process, or, or did you present the ideas to Philip and vice versa? How did that go? Oh, I mean, I suppose, I mean, some of the designs um, predate the film because some of the characters return from, oh, from the, the other film films. you did. Yeah. Okay. Um, not the. You need to have seen those to have seen this, but you know they they were all carryovers. Um, yeah, I mean we went back and forth and everything. We designed the characters pretty early on. Um, you know, like while we were filming the the motion reference, we had printed off a big poster of like a, a sheet of you know seventy characters that were that, so we could point to people so they know knew what they were looking at and what they the character they were playing look was going to look like. Um, so it was, it was mostly done beforehand. Uh, 
you know, there's sort of been a movement in fantasy art of the last decade to incorporate more um, gothic and horror qualities to some of the designs. So I think you can see that in, in some of the armor. Um, and we also wanted it, because it takes place over so many eras, for the designs to, like, <laughs> you see, it looks like they evolve with time in a small way. Like, we'd keep certain shapes within, like, one culture as they jump forward a century, you know, to try to give it an internal logic to how the costumes and armor evolve. Hmm, cool. Philip, a great score. Really liked it. Talk about finding your composer. Was this somebody you knew as well, or how did you find him? Yeah, so we actually have a number of composers that worked in the film. So um, we have, I think six total different sets of musicians who, who compose music for the wow. for the film. And, and the logic of that was basically the same as the logic that Morgan was just talking about in the design of the armor and stuff. We wanted to give each section of the film its own, um, you know, musical texture and its own set of instrumentation and its own special stamp, right? So we basically uh, attempted to find people who we thought could fit each of those different eras of the film. So, um, I mean, it, all of the composers we worked with were so fantastic. So the, the guy who did um, the opening sections, this guy, Peter Scarnabello, who is from Rhode Island, where I'm from. So I had known him casually um, and then just thought that he might have the chops to, to do what we, what we wanted to do. And I knew he loved fantasy and horror and all that stuff. So, and then from there, you know, we just, uh, some of them are musicians that whose work we knew and loved. This band, Can It Her, that does... I, I don't know what genre you call it. Psych folk. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and they did the second sequence. And then eventually you, we get into some sort of more synthesizer driven parts of the film that are sort of later in the development of the, you know, of the world, the fantasy world. But yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm massively excited about how the score turned out. I think it's really, yeah, it's really distinctive. Good. Speaking of the backgrounds, amazing backgrounds in this film. They really stand out. Morgan, talk about that aspect of it, because uh, obviously the animation, the character animation is a little different than the background, but I, I think it kind of gives it almost a 3D quality. We were specifically looking at how uh, Bakshi had designed or you know, worked with the designers to create the look of Fire and Ice, where it had, you know, they were trying to make it feel more like a Frank Frazetta paintings. So that was our... Um, that was sort of the goal with this one. In the short films, we've done more illustrated backgrounds, but I wanted to bring it more in line with that sort of, you know, classically painted look. Um, and it was amazing to get to work with a, a whole bunch of different painters, uh, you know, digital painters. And they'd, uh, we, so we had, we worked with a different painter mostly for each section so that each, like, chapter would have its own, you know, aesthetic somewhat separately from the rest of it, although on the same rough style. But uh, it was amazing to get to do it because so much of the, you know, the animation was, unless it had to interact with the background, was usually completed first. And so, you know, I, I would do a sketch of what the each shot should look like, just the roughest of rough sketches, send it off to the painters, and they would send back these just marvelous worlds. And all of a sudden, it's, you know, the characters are actually existing in an environment that just 
you know, was a white void before. Uh, and it was, it was amazing to see like the world come alive that way. It was, a, it was one of the highlights certainly is the feeling of like dropping it into the, the timeline and the editor and then suddenly being able to scrub through it. And the, the, I don't know. It, it goes from not being a fantasy world to being a fantasy world, mostly by virtue of the backgrounds. Yeah, uh, fantastic. I, I really, really liked it. Philip, you edited this. What was that process like? I mean, a lot of people don't look at animation and think you edit it. But obviously you do because of anything, time. So yeah. uh, you animate something and you realize that's too long. You got to do some cuts, etc. So talk about that process. Yeah, so, you know, because of the rotoscope, method, you know, the editing process of this film is different, I mean, different from both a standard live action film and then definitely different from a standard animated film. So, you know, we shot the entire film live action, basically like a really rudimentary version of it in a warehouse and then cut that together. So there exists an entirely very strange, mostly incomprehensible to anybody except Morgan and me live action version of this movie. Right. Um, and so a lot of the editing you know, was like editing a live action film, you know, you, you cut it to, you know, for pace and for character and for emotion. And then also you try to be very um, <laughs> precise and concise in the storytelling because, you know, you don't want to have to animate anything um, that you might end up losing, right? Like every second you can cut out saves time, you know, in the animation process. So that's how the live action editing went at the beginning, right? So we had this live action cut and then, but then because of the long time it took to animate the film, we ended up going back to the edit a number of times to make changes, um, sometimes to remove sequences that we had later come to realize were, um, uh, unnecessary or were like a double beat. Like there was a, there's a, a large courtyard battle in the film and in the yep. original version that we cut, there were two courtyard battles. And at a certain point we were like, well, you know, you don't need two courtyard battles. We can just have one extra awesome courtyard battle. There you uh, go. But then there were also moments when we realized we needed a little bit more with a certain character or we wanted to add just a little bit of a coda with, with certain characters. And we weren't able to repurpose certain shots or certain pieces of animation and, and, you know, insert that back into the cut. So, you know, we really, like so much of the rotoscope process, it was a real hybrid of how you would do live action and how you would do animation. Sci-fi talk returns in a moment. I guess people are going to, some people might cringe a little bit at the, at the violence of it. You know, one thing I think that's very accurate in any type of fantasy world, I mean, I've seen sword fighting where it's very elegant and <laughs> and very refined. But I, I, unless you've been blessed with some kind of training, most foot soldiers are just going to fight the way they know. And, uh, it's, you're, you're going to be a little brutal about it and very clumsy at times about it. I, I guess you kind of wanted, you both wanted kind of almost an organic feel to their fighting techniques. Yeah, very much so. You know, I, I always, you know, I think there's a risk of sort of, uh, like, glorifying militarism in a way where if you don't show the repercussions of it, then it's like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, when I was a kid that you'd see like in a GI Joe episode, you know, they shoot down the plane and everybody would always parachute out safely. Like there was these massive battles and it was, a, you know, a bloodless war. And so I, it's always felt important to me that if you're going to have violence in the film, that it should 
not sanitize the effects of that. So, yeah, I mean, we we had one of the scenes we had to cut was like <laughs> sort of a reference to um, the old Eon Flux, oh, yeah. uh, the pilot where. You know, sort of like we wanted to really get into like the horror of war, and you know there was a whole a sequence we unfortunately had to cut. It was just like it would have been like an extra ten minutes in the middle of the movie that was just you know someone sort of like bleeding out in a pool of blood, watching everyone fight. And I, I think we'd gotten the point across by then without having to do that. But um, you know, so so making it all feel yeah, I, I think clumsy is a good way to put it. Like you. You know, you're going to grab whatever you can and fight to stay alive as desperately as you possibly can in any situation. So, I, yeah, uh, going, making it gory was important to me. But it's also extremely fun to animate. Sure. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's both high-minded and low-minded at the same time. What stands out to me as far as thematically is, you know, the quest for power to try to possess something, to rule, and the how it could be benign, but also obviously very bad as well. Uh, speak to that for both of you. I mean, it's really emphasized in the film, and uh, it's it really is what hits home to me. And, that, and then the contrast with Lucy and the Guardian as well. I thought that was really cool. Well, for me, it was sort of thinking about it in terms of like a, you know, there's sort of the, the Plato's noble lie about the, the myths you have to perpetuate throughout a society to to hold power, and like how withholding knowledge is a way of solidifying rule and power over a group. And so, I mean, I think we're sort of looking at with the the bloom as a metaphor for both power and knowledge. You know, Richard E. Grant's character of the Guardian is very much on the Plato's side of that, of how you can't share it. And Lucy Wallace's character, Zod, is, you know, regularly sharing what she can with her people. And so, and sort of how those differing worldviews interact and sort of the stalemate you get there when, like, sort of a authoritarian uh, insurgent just inserts themselves into the middle of that and, you know, has acts without those concerns. Um, so th- that was all, uh, you know, thematically stuff I really wanted to explore. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I love fantasy literature in general, um, but I do think it has, at least traditionally, like a little bit of a king problem. And by that, I mean, like, I mean, I said this in other interviews before, but like, like, you know, Return of the King sounds to me like a threat more than a, a happy thing, right? You know, like, I don't want to have a king, like, nor should anybody. So I think, at least in my opinion, so, you know, the, the film certainly has, I think that, I don't know if you want to call it anti-authoritarian streak in it, but, you know, it is, it is very much about, as Morgan said, you know, like, what happens when somebody who has a real will to power, to use a very fraught phrase, um, like, gets a hold of something, um, powerful and then uses it, you know, for very awful means, basically. Um, yeah. And just a, a movie that's very cynical about the idea of any, of any king. I mean, even in the mythological origin story in the film like that, that Richard E. Grant gives a great sort of um, snide remark about that very first king of men as well. Like the, the whole movie is very um, skeptical of that idea. Obviously with COVID, uh, Yep. Shutter is a great place for it. I think people will connect to it. 
And in my case, I have a, we, we bought a 65 inch big screen TV. So I know it would look good uh, on there. So, uh, you know, I saw it on my 27 inch monitor and it still looked pretty good. But uh, on a big screen uh, at home these days, which is what people are doing during COVID, it's just buying the big screen and watching their movies that way. So cool. Very good. I'm, I'm glad. What's up for both of you next? Oh, uh, Phil's doing a lot of things. He can, I'm sure he'll get into, but I, uh, for me, it's mostly been sort of in the same way that I was saying at the beginning, you know, taking all the thoughts we had during the process of making this and sort of trying to solidify them into outlines and future plans and, you know, just to sort of see what more we could do with the sandbox and where, how much, uh, weirder we could get with it. And so I've mostly just been focusing on that myself. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got other things I'm doing, but the thing I'm most excited about is the idea of doing more weird, dark fantasy stuff, uh, you know, with Morgan, to be honest. So people, when the movie's on Shutter, you should go watch it on Shutter so that they can be really impressed with our streaming numbers. <laughs> Would you both revisit this world again or, or maybe go in a different direction? We've talked about both, certainly. Um, if the... It took seven years to draw, so I think I would want to do... If we were going to revisit this style and this world specifically, we'd probably need a uh, larger, faster workforce that hopefully could use some of the uh, modernizations that we did not use for this, just to get it across the finish line, you know, in the next decade. But, uh, yeah, I, we've got a lot of ideas for other, uh, you know weird fantasy projects to pursue too. So yeah, I'm open to a lot of things. Yeah. Thank you both. And yeah, this would, this would be a nightmare to film live action. I can tell you because <laughs> <laughs> there's just too much going on and, and, you know, with animation and people's imaginations, you can do a heck of a lot. And I think it really works extremely well in animation. Oh, and, awesome. uh, you know, and it was, it was fun to see and uh, made you think a little bit and, Two good combinations right there for entertainment. Spine of Night is available on Shudder. For rent or for buy, you can get it on Redbox, Google Play, Amazon, and Vudu, plus YouTube. Shudder is a subscription service. And Sci-Fi Talk Plus is available right now. Over 800 episodes, we can join with a special offer, free without any obligation. This is Tony Tolado.